Podcast. Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. I am your host, Joshua Summer. If you're watching here on YouTube, please click that subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications so that you can be updated whenever we produce and drop new content. This is the third take. It's the third take of this episode. First, I, I messed the first take up royally, so I had to start over. And then, like, in the introduction of the second take, these my monitoring headphones die, and then the audio starts coming through the computer speakers, and there's feedback in the microphone, and ah, I love audio. Audio is great. You would think by now we'd have some, like, easy solution to audio, but we don't. <laughs> And I find this to be true across the board. Like you go into churches with uh, AV, you know, audio visual systems, you know, ours, we have a very small one in comparison to, to most churches, but yet we still have our audio struggles. And it's almost a joke from Sunday to Sunday, like, oh, Victory Baptist Church audio files. Uh, you know, it's like, and and I've, you know, I've, I've been in churches that have quite large AV systems and, you know, they... They uh, experience the same kinds of issues and difficulties on a larger scale even than we do. So it's kind of funny, you know, all of our technological advancement, we still really struggle with, you know, integrated AV. It's, it's really kind of, it's kind of comical. It's as comical as it is frustrating. Anyway, virtue ethics, a massive area of Christian theology. This is something I've been wanting to talk about for a while, but haven't really felt comfortable talking about it until I thought I might have something actually helpful to say. Um, and I would by no means consider myself an expert when it comes to virtue ethics, but I think that that I've come to a, a point where at least I might you be the judge of that. I might be able to say something helpful, even if it's not much. This episode may, in fact, be much longer than it is helpful, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, so, you know, this is a it's, a, it's a big area of theology. It's particularly when you get into the historical side of things, because one of my struggles when it comes to, you know, kind of like a, a neat consolidation and concise systematization of the virtues is that in the reformed tradition it's it's kind of difficult to find uh and and i'm con now i'm convinced that that's because the virtue ethics at least the virtues themselves from the middle ages or as they were systematized in the middle ages were being assumed in the reformed tradition and not and so the reformed tradition didn't really feel the need whether you're talking about the reformers uh, or the post-reform or Reformation reformed didn't really feel the need to systematize once more the virtues since they had already been, you know, uh, magisterially systematized by Aristotle, but also systematized once again, kind of integrated more so within the Christian tradition in individuals like Thomas Aquinas. But even in the Middle Ages, you know, contemporary to someone like Thomas, you don't find just like systems of virtue ethics all over the place. And so you'll get this language, both in the Reformed tradition and in the Middle Ages, that make you think that virtues are a lot more than just human actions. Whereas today, you know, we think about virtues as being reducible to a particular deed or a work, and we say that 
or this work is virtuous. And to us, that's what virtue is. Well, in the Middle Ages and in the Reformed period or the Reformation era and the post-Reformation, virtues were seen as something much more ontological and metaphysical, something real and not just something that describes this or that moral deed. Um, and so a actually virtues in the Middle Ages and in the, you know, reform scholastics, for example, are really what account for human behavior. So they are principles of human acts is what virtues are. Uh, and, and we don't really think about virtues that way anymore. And as a result, we have a hard time, I think, kind of thinking about the mechanics of our sanctification in particular. And that's another difference kind of between the medieval and the Reformation periods is you're, you're going to have um, a difference in terms of where the virtues are, are situated. So you're not going to really have disagreement about the virtues themselves or what the virtues are. You're going to have disagreement about where the virtues sit within the scheme of soteriology, for example. Um, and so whereas the Reformed wouldn't see them as being really tied to justification, justification being forensic, uh, the virtues are more so seen within the, the project of sanctification. And so you're going to have differences like that. But my question is, and like my interest is, what are the virtues? And I think when you're asking the question, what are the virtues, you're really going to see a lot of continuity between the Reformation era and the medieval era that went before. And, and all the way back to Aristotle, you're not going to have a whole lot of disagreement as to what, like, for example, temperance is, you know, or you're not going to have disagreement um, as to what, even between the Middle Ages and the Reformation era, you're not going to have disagreement as to what faith as a human habit or virtue is. You're going to have various emphases that are different regarding the virtue of faith between the Middle Ages and the Reformation, but you're not going to have like substantial disagreement as to what faith is sick at simpliciter, if that makes sense. And so, um, fascinating discussion. Uh, and again, m my my interest and and really the subject matter of this of this episode is going to be what are the virtues? And so, what I would like to do is I'm gonna I'm gonna walk through a some some definitional material here. We're going to look at the, the the kind of Greek lexical definition, which was which would be proper to Scripture, and then we'll look at you know kind of a historical definition that kind of just I guess aggregates or summarizes the biblical use of the term, and then you know there's some uh, material that I'd like to share from from John Calvin, and then I have a bunch of material from uh, you know uh, Reformed authors. Um, I mean, from Jonathan Edwards to, like, Ursinus, you know. So, like, a, a huge array, uh, different eras and different, you know, centuries and authors with definitely different emphases and even disagreements that are all going to be really kind of agreeing and assuming virtue ethics. And that's part of the difficulty with virtue ethics is, is it was, in the Reformed tradition, it was largely assumed, I think. I'm convinced that it was. And so sometimes you get this, and I'm not sure where I stand on this or whether I, I agree or disagree, And but I'll, I'll go ahead and put the predicament to you so that you can think about it. You'll get language in Burkhoff and Bavink that will, you know, say that 
the reformed, you know, basically neglected the vir virtue ethics and neglected kind of the systematization of the virtue ethics of like Thomas Aquinas in order to talk about more legal obedience or adherence to God's moral law. Um, I, I, that might be true. Uh, I'm not, but I'm not sure. I don't, I can't just get on board with that because there's this other part of me as I read the literature that says, no, these guys were assuming what the medievals were saying. They're just not, they're not, they're not rebuilding the wheel. You know, they're not rechiseling the wheel, so to speak. They're, they're just moving on and they're, and they're building on what had already been, been laid. There's for them, there's no need to rehash virtue ethics. It's something that's been settled and codified since the time of Aristotle. And then just, just, you know, probably the most, uh, groundbreaking, earth-shattering contribution to virtue ethics that Christianity actually introduces to something like Aristotle would be the theological virtues as conceived within Christian theology, faith, hope, and love. And so that would be your major shift where faith, hope, and love would really bring to perfection or completion the moral virtues um, within the Christian life. And so what is lacking in moral virtues and the unredeemed man is is filled up, so to speak, through the kind of uh, crowning jewels of faith, hope, and love that are only given at the effectual call by the Holy Spirit, um, you know, as a result of God's free grace. Yeah. So let's look at uh, virtue, the, just the term virtue in, uh, in the Greek. Uh, it comes from a Greek word, erite. Uh, some Greeks thought that, or some early uh, theologians believed that erite was kind of an indication that maybe, you know, the, the virtues or the notion of virtue derived from the arts, art, uh, erite. Um, but the word itself, lexically, uh, is a, a very broadly used term. So when you're thinking about this word, erite, from which we get our word virtue, it's very broadly used in the literature. It's widely applicable. Um, it's, it's used to insinuate or indicate any excellence of a person, any perfection that is found in a person to a greater or lesser degree in body or mind. Uh, this word erite can be applied to that in description of that. Um, it can be used in regards to the perfection of a thing, maybe not only of a person. Uh, it's an imminent endowment, uh, a property or a quality, which is kind of how Augustine defines it, I think, and, and how Thomas thinks of it is it's a, it's a quality, um, and we'll get into that here in a little bit, um, and it's, it's, it's mainly used of the human mind and in an ethical sense. Um, and, and that's the sense right there. So it's so broad, it's broadly applicable, but it's used. It's also used precisely of the human mind and in an ethical sense. And that's the use that we are after when we're talking about so-called virtue ethics. And as it's used in that sense, it denotes kind of a virtuous course of thought Feeling and action, this, by the way, is from Thayer's lexicon, a virtuous course of thought, feeling and action, virtue, moral goodness. Um, there's a slew of kind of citations from the Apocrypha there, but also Second Peter 1.5, um, 
moral vigor, zeal, etc. Uh, so this kind of, and I and I would go ahead and add that a virtuous course of thought really has a lot of, um, a lot of kind of insinuation or connotation of virtue as a habit, which is an extensive discussion in uh, the Summa Theologiae. So a, a virtuous course of thought, if you think of a virtuous course of thought, feeling and action, uh, we could summarize that as a as a habit. Excuse me. Now, I know that's a different term that I've just introduced into the into the definition of, of virtue, but uh, maybe that's helpful because we use the word habit quite often. We use the word habit probably more so than we do virtue. Um, but when it's considered, when, when erite is considered uh, in regards to the human mind in an ethical sense, it also denotes any particular moral excellence or perfection, modesty, purity. So when we're talking about the virtues, that's how we're using the term uh, in within kind of the an understanding of virtue ethics. So we're talking about the virtues, plural, where we're talking about these these moral perfections in man. And, um, and, and and I would say that not only not moral just in the sense of deeds, but moral in the sense of disposition, uh, passion, uh, affection as well. Those things which undergird or explain why a man does what he does, right? Those would be the affections or, uh, or the habits uh, or the passions within man. Uh, the Augustinian definition, it's, it's, it's reproduced, I think, in a helpful summary way in Thomas, um, but I'll give you the actual citation from whence Thomas picks it up in Augustine. So Thomas summarizes the Augustinian definition as such. Virtue is a good quality of the mind by which we live righteously, of which no one can make bad use. So it's impossible to use a virtue for bad because it's the principle of action. Um, so that's pretty interesting. Uh, which God works in us without us. All right, so everybody accusing Thomas of semi-Pelagianism and stuff, it's always kind of comical to me because you always find this affinity in Thomas Aquinas for Augustine, and obviously the reception of the important parts of Augustine are found in the Summa Theologiae and the Summa Contra Gentiles, and you find language like this, that, you know, like, these virtues God works in us somehow without us, all right? That's true, I would say, for natural virtue as well as supernatural virtue, uh, or the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. We'll get there here in a moment. Uh, as far as where Thomas gets that from in Augustine, that's from uh, De, Lib uh, De Libero uh, uh, Arbitrio uh, 2.19, or to say that in English, on the free choice of the will. Uh, there's a handy copy of this digitized online uh, by Cambridge, Cambridge University Press, uh, printed in 2010. You can find that on spot.colorado.edu slash little wavy sign. I don't know what that's called. Uh, it's like the little wavy version of the dash. Pasna, P-A-S-N-A-U slash 4020 slash Augustine.pdf. I'll put that link in the show notes so that you don't have to try and type in what I just said there. So anyway, we have a working definition of virtue. Virtue is a good quality of the mind by which we live righteously. So it's this objective quality, though. And this is what really interests me. Because, you know, when, when talking about human morality today, we, we reduce it down to, to things that we do 
And then we, we just kind of get to choose subjectively whether or not that thing was good. So so-and-so feeds a dog on the street, and we just say, that's good. And so that must be virtuous, and, and, and it is. All right, so d don't, don't hear me as saying that acts aren't virtuous at all. But what I am saying is to reduce morality to just outward human behavior truncates the human being. Because no longer are you are you seeing morality as seated within the soul of man, but you're seeing morality as exclusively an outward or external uh, shell uh, or an outward or an external uh, operation. And, and that's that's really, in essence, that's a pharisaical view of morality and obedience. And so I think to, to, to bring back in kind of a healthy, full-fledged, whether you want to go into the Middle Ages and, and try to see what they were doing or, or try to find it all in the reform period, it doesn't matter. I think what, what, what really matters here is that we recover or retrieve a, a kind of full-fledged or, or fuller orb view of virtue and what it is. Because it's not reducible down to human acts. Do human acts follow from virtue? Yes, absolutely. But virtue is, is yet more fundamental than the acts themselves. In fact, virtues are what account for and give rise to human behavior. Uh, they are objective qualities of the mind or of the soul. So I think that's really important. Um, there's a, and I, you know, bringing this back to what I said earlier about the Reformation and the transition from the medieval period into the Reformation, there's a rich reception of medieval virtue ethics in the Reformation and the post-Reformation Reformed Orthodox. John Calvin, for example, after granting natural virtue in the heathen, by the way, so he's not saying there is no natural virtue. A lot of people think there that Calvin will say, you know, there's no such, there's no good at all in the heathen. Um, that's not reading Calvin in context. Uh, he will make sweeping statements like that. Don't get me wrong, but but Calvin's a lot more nuanced than that. And and one of the things that he says here, and this is after granting natural virtue to the heathen, he shows that he sees the virtues in the heathen to be incomplete and and useless when we're talking about our standing before God. Um, he sees them to be useless in the heathen. Nevertheless, he grants them that they're there. They don't do anything to justify them. They don't do anything to earn any favor or merit any favor from God, yet the virtues are there, and Calvin openly grants that. Um, but he ultimately sees a need for Christ for the perfection of those virtues, because he's assuming, like the Middle Ages, or the, the theologians of the Middle Ages did, that grace perfects nature. And so he says this, for though they are instruments of God to preserve human... He's talking about magistrates. For though they are instruments of God to preserve human society by justice, continence, friendship, temperance, fortitude, and prudence, yet they execute these good works of God in the worst manner because they are kept from acting... They are kept from acting ill. So he's saying they are kept from acting ill. These virtues have some sort of a function or use within society. They're kept from acting ill, not by a sincere love of goodness. And that's the defect that Calvin sees in them, is, is that their, their passions are misdirected, while perhaps the acts that they exert are good and virtuous, yet their passions aren't there, they're misaligned, and so they do the good thing for the wrong reason. And so they don't, they don't act from a, a sincere love of goodness, but merely by ambition or self-love or some other sinister affection, he says. 
Uh, and again, on natural virtue, he, and by the way, that, to, to give you a citation of that, that is from, well, I, I have this terrible edition from Kindle. I have a better edition on, obviously, in on my bookshelf, but also um, on Logos. Uh, there's, a, there's a Kindle edition of the collection, the John Calvin collection, 12 classic works, Wax Keep Publishing, it's Kindle. Uh, this is location 14098 uh, is where this was was from. And it's a it's an inexpensive version of Calvin uh, that you can get from there. It includes the Institutes, but other works as well. You can get on Amazon. So that's handy. The only bad thing about it is I can't give you a real precise citation. Um, the next part that I'm about to quote, uh, I'll be able to give you a better one. So he says this, and he's saying this on natural virtue. He remarks... In every age, there have been persons who, guided by nature, have striven toward virtue throughout life. I have nothing to say against them, even if many lapses can be noted in their moral conduct. For they have, by the very zeal of their honesty, given proof that there was some purity in their nature. Although, in discussing merit of works, we shall deal more fully with what, with what value such virtues have in God's sight, which he's going to say none. We must nevertheless speak of it also at this point, inasmuch as it is necessary for the unfolding of the present argument. So again, Calvin is very nuanced and perhaps imprecise in some of his discussion concerning the virtues. Because on one hand, he's saying, well, they're completely useless and uh, they're not true, you know, and he's got some strong language that he marshals against virtues in the heathen. But then also he says things like this, and uh, this comes from uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, the um, Battles Edition, Volume 1, 292, page 292. Um, and so you, you really just, it's kind of like, it's almost like Aquinas on some points. You, you can't just cherry pick Aquinas. You can't just cherry pick Calvin uh, because these guys are, are, are pretty nuanced and you got to read them more broadly and widely in order to get their nuance. Whereas if you're just kind of picking out of one chapter here or one book there, uh, you're going to miss their qualifiers. And I'm convinced that what, that's what happens on Twitter all the time. People quoting other people out of context. And, and as a result, you know, they make them say something they weren't really saying, uh, or at least they present incomplete information. So anyway, the virtue ethics were, virtues themselves were received into the Reformation, even in someone like Calvin. Now, their relationship you know, to something like justification is, of course, uh, a a point or a crux of disagreement where, you know, Calvin's going to say, obviously, the virtues make no difference in relation to a man's right standing before God. There's nothing that a man can do. He's following Luther, right? There's nothing a man can do to justify himself before God. He needs the righteousness of Christ and the forgiveness of sins, which is true. And so uh, he's going to, Calvin will locate the virtues within Christian sanctification, and he's going to see them as largely only being useful uh, and within a redemptive context, only within that kind of area of theology, which would be soteriology, but sanctification more precisely, not justification. Um, now there's, let me just, let me just run you guys through I, I want to do. A, I'm going to give a taxonomy of the virtues here in a minute, but I would just like to run you guys through all the places where you find the technical use of 
one of the three kinds or categories of virtue. They're basically, well, let's say there are four categories of virtues. You have the cardinal virtues, the moral virtues. Those are overlapping, by the way. Then you have the intellectual, the intellectual, excuse me, intellectual virtues, and then the theological virtues. So four total categories for the virtues, and you find one or more of those technical um, kind of terms to indicate the virtues in plenty of Protestants. Uh, for example, Thomas Brooks, um, hope is the theological virtue that none can give but God. And he's siding there with Thomas Aquinas, who said that the theological virtues do not come apart from the grace of God. God gives them to you in the effectual call, essentially, in his, in his uh, work within you. Uh, he gives you the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. And Brooks is, is saying, you know, he's repeating that same point. Nobody but God can give these. These these aren't seeded in nature and able to be nourished by natural, you know, means or anything like that. These faith, hope, and love is given only by God. Um, he talks about, let's see, uh, that is uh, Ursinus. Ursinus talks about the principal virtues or the cardinal virtues. Burkhoff. Uh, gives a decent characterization of moral versus theological virtues in Middle Ages. Um, that's in his systematic theology. When it comes to moral virtue, operative and passive, you have Edward, Jonathan Edwards, Benjamin Keach, Matthew Henry, Charles Hodge, Ursinus, George Swinnick, uh, Thomas Hall, another Puritan, Ezekiel Hopkins, another Puritan, on the mean of virtue, the mean that virtue maintains, uh, so the mean is that which lies between the extremes, um, which virtue maintains. Uh, Thomas Brooks talks about the mean of virtue. William Bates talks about the mean of virtue. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's, uh, there are all sorts of, of reformed uh, Protestant authors that discuss the virtues. This doesn't even include, you know, someone, you know, a group like the Lutherans or something like that who I'm sure have extensive discussions on the virtues at places as well. I would say Jonathan Edwards, even though he's he's an 18th century theologian, he's got a pretty precise grasp of the virtues. And so he would be worth uh, reading and pursuing on that front as well. Very scholastic. Uh, not perfect in everything. Obviously, I've got disagreements with Edwards, but... Um, he's he's got some good discussion on the virtues. If you're if you're just looking for kind of a taxonomy, he uh, he's one of the clearest, I think. Um, speaking of taxonomy, a taxonomy of virtues. Let's do this. I have a paper that I'm writing for International Reformed Baptist Seminary for a theological anthropology class, and I'm doing it for Stefan Lindblad, who's the professor of that class, just finishing up. And so in that paper, I decided to lay out a brief taxonomy of the virtues. Now, uh, a taxonomy is just the ordering of things according to their species and genus, genus and species. And so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to look at the, the categories of virtues and then how, uh, and then kind of the subcategories of each of those categories, if that makes sense. So we're going to look at uh, moral, cardinal, Again, those two things overlap, so you're going to see some repetition here. Uh, moral, cardinal, um, uh, intellectual, and uh, theological virtues. Um, so the first one that I would like to look at, the first category, rather, would be 
the moral virtues. So moral virtues can be considered in two ways. They can be considered operatively or passionately. So they can be considered according to operation, what we do, or they can be considered according to passion or what is in us and what is desired by us. All right, so when I, when I use those two words, and I think how Thomas uses those two words, operation or passion, those two words are distinguished yet related. The passion, of course, giving rise to the operation, and then the operation nourishing the passion. Okay, so... Um, when we when we think of when we think of moral virtues in relation to operations they are three religion piety and gratitude religion is that by means that by which man gives to god what he owes piety regards returning what man owes to natural authorities right so parents or nation you know a submissiveness to earthly authorities and so on and gratitude is debt repaid to benefactors, as a man desires to render thankfulness to another who has given him a gift. Um, considered as passions, moral virtues would be fortitude, temperance, and meekness. Fortitude is courage. It's the same thing as courage. That's a synonym, uh, which is the opposite of kind of a carnal fear. Temperance is prob properly ordered desires. Um, uh, today, today we sometimes call this moderation, but a more technical, I think, full-bodied term would be temperance. Uh, and meekness regards patience or abstinence from unrighteous anger or, you know, any kind of unrighteous swaying of the passions one from the other. So those are, those are your moral virtues. Operatively, they are religion, piety, and gratitude. Passionately, they are fortitude, temperance, and meekness. The intellectual uh, virtues are three, and actually there's a distinction to be made between the um, theoretical intellectual virtues and the practical intellectual virtues. Um, but I have here the uh, theoretical intellectual virtues, which would be wisdom, science, and understanding. All right, so intellectual virtues, wisdom, science, and understanding. And then we have the other two categories of virtue, cardinal virtues and theological virtues. Again, cardinal virtues, cardinal virtues are, it's interesting when you, when you get to the kind of the flow of discussion of the virtues in someone like Thomas, because cardinal virtues don't come first. Moral, moral and intellectual virtues come first. Yet cardinal virtues are considered to be the principal virtues, those which are kind of requisites to all the rest. And so that's why they're called cardinal, they're of a higher priority or perhaps of a more fundamental nature than the rest. So, uh, Ursinus calls them principal virtues and, and so does Thomas. So, uh, cardinal or principal virtues, and you're going to notice some overlap here with moral virtues are temperance, ju justice or righteousness, prudence and fortitude. So there are four cardinal virtues, temperance, justice, prudence, and fortitude. All right. So, uh, and by the way, if I didn't mention it already, and I don't think I did, uh, there are either natural virtues or supernatural virtues, and everything we've discussed so far are natural virtues. So these are virtues that are found in nature. They can even be honed or sharpened through nature. 
Um, they can be found in the natural unregenerate man to one extent or another. Of course, they're always going to be imperfect, yet they are there. So temperance, justice, prudence, and fortitude can be found in a Stoic philosopher who rejects Christ, for example, um, yet to an imperfect degree and, of course, not brought to completion by the theological virtues. So everything I've said so far are natural virtues. That's cardinal, moral, and intellectual virtues. Those are all natural virtues. They can be found throughout the course of nature. So, um, again, temperance, justice, or righteousness, prudence, and fortitude. Those are cardinal virtues. Um, Thomas says, those virtues which imply rectitude of the appetite are called principal virtues. Uh, consequently, those virtues which are called principal or cardinal are fittingly placed among the moral virtues. So he's observing there the, the overlap, obviously, between cardinal virtues and moral virtues. Though moral virtues may work out more so, and they may uh, branch off more so than cardinal virtues do, cardinal being the most fundamental, uh, yet they can be considered moral. All right, cardinal virtues are still yet considered moral. And then there's the theological virtues. And, you know, really someone like Calvin and moving on up through the Reformation and the post-Reformation Puritans, theological virtue, all the other, even the natural virtues are going to be incomplete and detestable before God apart from the theological virtues, which sort of improve or perfect the natural virtues in man. So uh, all that the natural virtues are are going to be imperfectly realized in the natural man, and it's going to require faith, hope, and love to bring those, to elevate those natural virtues, um, because grace perfects nature. So, uh, theological virtues are faith, hope, and love, and it's only through faith, hope, and love that the natural virtues, you know, something like justice, temperance, um, prudence, fortitude, uh, and so on, you know, or the intellectual virtues, understanding, you know, I believe that I may understand uh, Anselm says. So uh, the only, the only, the reason for that is because the, the theological virtues are what bring the intellectual, moral, and cardinal virtues to their fullness. So faith, hope, and love. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul writes, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet of hope, uh, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. In places like 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So these are these are these are the theological virtues. Now, the reason they're called theological virtues, and this is this goes for Thomas as well as the Reformed, is this, and this is this is part of the great deal of continuity that you're going to find between someone like Aquinas and, you know, uh, 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 reform scholastic is going to be in the fact that theological virtues are seen as infused virtues. All right, these are virtues that do not exist apart from an operation of the Holy Spirit. There's no way to find these virtues in nature. There, you're not born with them. You, uh, you're, you are not able to improve them because you you don't have them naturally. Um, the only way the theological virtues come to be found within any given person is if God gives them to that person through grace, uh, grace which is given by the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, and as uh, the Reformed would say, this, this happens at the effectual call, um, not the general call where the gospel is preached to all people, but the effectual call where uh, God, according to uh, the decree of election, 
in his kindness and mercy is pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit sinners to himself through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And at that moment, uh, he engenders them with faith, hope, and love. And then, of course, the remainder of the Christian life uh, is sanctification, right? So sanctification wrought by the Holy Spirit of God, and everyone's different and progresses at different rates and stages and so on. But faith, hope, and love are only improved within the context of sanctification, uh, following our justification. So we don't we don't have faith, hope, and love as requisites to our justification. We have faith, hope, and love as a result of our justification. And then in sanctification is where we nourish and grow these theological virtues uh, by walking in the means God has given us to do so. Uh, and those would be called the means of grace. I would also note this, and some more research could go into this as well. The extent to which the Reformed end up calling the theological virtues graces. So a lot of times you're going to read uh, the Reformed and you'll, 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 you'll hear them talk about graces. Um, and when they talk about graces and when they describe what that is, usually... Uh, they're describing things that have to do with the theological virtues. Um, and so it's interesting, you know, uh, Aquinas says these theological virtues are only given by grace, uh, that you can't, you can't come by them naturally. And it seems like the Reformed kind of receive that point uh, and, and agree with it, but they, they kind of further specify it or or make it more precise by calling the theological virtues graces. Um, and I think what that does is it actually it actually provides us with a way to distinguish that which is given by God through grace alone and you know virtues that you might find out in the world, in the natural world amongst the heathen. Whereas if you were to say theological virtues, you know, a heathenist person might say, yeah, I have theological virtues because I believe in God and so on and so forth. While all the while they mean, you know, Jove or Zeus or somebody like that. Or the, 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 the Muslims mean, you know, Allah or, you know. Uh, and so to, to call them graces would be a way to, I think, further distinguish them as something that are, that's distinctly Christian non-heathenists, and not just natural. They're not natural. They're, they're given by God alone, supernaturally, in regeneration. Um, but again, that's another area of inquiry that would need to be further explored, because I'm not actually sure if that's what's going on. It appears to be the case that, that the Reformed are calling theological virtues graces, which I think is a helpful specifying term. So, um, we're at almost 40 minutes. I usually like to stop around here and, you know, I don't like to go much past this, this time marker here. So I'm going to go ahead and, and close it up there. I've got a lot more material on this, but hopefully this was helpful. Uh, next week, we're going to be having uh, Dr. James Renahan on. Uh, he was going to be on this week, uh, Providential Hindrance. Um, was tra He was traveling and came back with a cold. Uh, so didn't want to be coughing and and interrupting the interview and so forth, which I thank him for that. 
Uh, although it would have been nice to have him even if he was coughing. Uh, but no, I, I think we're going to be able to record uh, a, a more uh, quality episode for y'all uh, once he's on the up and up. So we're going to do that hopefully Friday. And then by next week, you'll you'll have that uh, that episode with Jim Renahan and I. And we'll be I'll be interviewing him on Nehemiah Cox and Vindicii Veritatis contra Thomas Collier. So that'll be a very fun episode. I'm looking forward to that. And I hope you are as well. Guys, if you enjoyed this episode, please click the subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube. If you don't watch this on YouTube, but you you listen to this on a podcast uh, kind of format, if you listen on iTunes, please leave a review. Uh, five stars, of course, would be appreciated, but you know, be honest as well. Um, and so uh, if you listen on Spotify, I think there's a way to review uh, podcasts on there as well. So please, con- please consider doing that. Um, we have the Victory Conference this year, 2023, in August 9th and 10th. So consider registering for that on Eventbrite. You can find that on victorybaptistkc.org. Uh, just click the banner on the front page. It'll take you to the info page, and you can get to Eventbrite and all that, so you can register for free. Um, again, the speakers are going to be Jim Renahan, Sam Renahan, and Steve Meister. So we're very much looking forward to that. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.